We're going to talk this morning about adoption, not our adoption of children. Joseph Bailey is going to talk about that later this morning in one of the breakout sessions. However, I want to say to you, um, when Joseph, if you think, well, I'm not interested in adopting, I haven't adopted, so I'm not really interested in going to that session, you should reconsider because what Joseph is going to be talking about is not narrowly the literal adoption of children. He's going to be talking about that. But I'm, I'm sure he's going to be talking much more broadly. So if that um, has kept you from going to that session, you should reconsider. But adoption, God's adoption of us. The word adoption shows up only five times in the New Testament. And of those five times, only three of them are talking about the Christian's present relationship with God. And yet, J.I. Packer wrote things like this in his book, Knowing God. The book is back on the book table in the chapter called, uh, I think it's called Sons of God, is one of the best things you'll read on the doctrine of adoption. But he says things like this. He says, you sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase, if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. That's what the whole Testament is about. And in the same way you sum up the knowledge, or you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's father. Or he says things like this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and whole outlook of life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Or things like this, he says, our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Adoption. Our adoption as sons by God the Father is a very big deal. And as I've thought about God's adoption of sinners to be his sons, I've begun to see how vital it is to understand and to believe it. Because almost everything in the Christian life depends on understanding and believing this. And there's a lot to understand so that we can believe it. But before we get into the biblical teaching about our adoption as sons, we need to understand the backdrop. The most basic question we can ask a man is this. Who is your father? Because the proverb is true. Like father, like son. That's a proverb that gets clearer to me the older I get and the older my sons get. I see my dad in me all the time, for better and for worse. He's sitting right here. (laughs) And I see myself and my sons all the time, for better and for worse. And the proverb is true, like father, like son. But I'm talking about a greater reality than that. Your paternity determines your nature. In other words, the most basic question we can ask about a man is this, who is your father? Literally, who you are in the depths of your being flows from your father. 
Now, I'm not talking about genetics. I'm not talking about hair color and stature and cholesterol levels or even things like habits and personality traits and, and propensities. I'm talking about nature, being, essence. Who are you? The Bible answers that question over and over again by pointing to your father. Often scripture points to your earthly biological father. We read this kind of language all the time, sons of Noah. The sons of Noah did such and such. The sons of Ammon, the sons of Jacob. But more importantly, God speaks of a different, more basic kind of paternity. So for example, the Holy Spirit uses a vivid description of bad men in the Old Testament over and over again. And our modern translations of scripture completely obscure this vivid description of wicked men. Here's one example, 1 Samuel 2, 12 and 13. It says, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord and the custom of the priests with the people. Or Judges 19, 22. While they were celebrating, behold, the men of the, of the city, certain worthless fellows, surrounded the house, pounding the door, and they spoke to the owner of the house, the old man, saying, bring out the man who came into your house that we may have relations with him. We're all supposed to think Sodom and Gomorrah when we read that, but it's not Sodom and Gomorrah, it's Israel. But look at those words. How does the Holy Spirit actually describe these men? Our translations say they are worthless men or worthless fellows. But what the Holy Spirit actually calls them is sons of Belial. Literally, sons of worthlessness. Why can't we just translate it that way? Sons of worthlessness. Who are these men? What are they? The sons of Eli are actually sons of worthlessness. They have Eli's DNA, but Eli is not their most formative father. Their real father is worthlessness, and so they themselves are worthless. Like father, like son. Here's another example of this basic principle. It's from Ephesians 2. The Apostle Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. What's the most basic thing that you can say about an unbeliever? What is he by nature? He's a child of wrath. And so at the most basic fundamental level, an unbeliever is the object of God's wrath. The wrath of God is his father. Another example, Ephesians 5, 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. There's that term again. Disobedience is the unbeliever's father. And so what does the unbeliever do? He disobeys, like father, like son. The fullest expression of this comes from our Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 8. Pastor Bailey, Tim read this, a part of this last night, but I want to read it again. 
John chapter 8, verse 31. It's so formative and so central to understanding who you are. John 8, 31. So Jesus was saying to these, those Jews who had believed him, notice these are Jews who had believed him. So there are people sitting in this room right now who fall into that category. People who have believed Jesus. And yet look at what he says. He says, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. And they said to him, we were not born of fornication, like you were. We have one God, one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God, and we should hear born of God, he who is of God, I've lost my place. Yeah. He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. But I honor my father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and, he, and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. 
your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This passage speaks for itself. Like father, like son. All those who do not have God as their father have the devil as their father. And remember, this is Jesus talking to people who claim to believe him. All of this was to people who claimed to believe him. Some of you are sitting here this morning claiming to believe in Jesus Christ, and yet your father remains the devil. You're a liar. How do we know? Your life tells us. You do the deeds of your father. Now, some of you might think that I just went too far. Some of you might think that everyone is a child of God. You believe in the liberal doctrine of the universal fatherhood of God, the universal brotherhood of man. And you might even think that you have scripture on your side because after all, the Apostle Paul says in, in Acts 17, uh, in, when he's speaking to the Athenians, he says, being then the children of God. He quotes one of their prophets, we are all God's children Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. See, there it is. We're all children of God. Even the pagans in Athens were children of God. Well, all men are, in fact, children of God in one sense. We are children of God in the sense that we're all God's creatures. That's what Paul's point is in Acts 17. God created us. Therefore, God cannot be something that we create with gold and silver and stone. But unless the Apostle Paul is, is a crazy man, <laughs> unless he, he's lost his mind, he can't mean that, all God's, that, that every man, woman, and child is a child of God in the salvation sense. He can't mean that. Because Paul says that all unbelievers are children of wrath and sons of disobedience. Others might object like this. You think that these terms are reserved for really, really bad people. Sons of worthlessness, sons of wrath, sons of destruction, sons of the devil. And you say, that's true of really, really bad people, but it's not true of me. It's not true of most people. The problem with that is it denies the plain teaching of Scripture. The Apostle Paul says, we were all by nature children of wrath even as the rest. This is who you and I are coming into this world. And in 1 John 3, 8 to 10, the Apostle Paul says in his typical, wonderful, black and white way, he says this, the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin. Because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Ultimately, there are only two paternity options. You are either of God or of the devil. You are either a child of God or a child of the devil. 
That is true of every one of us in this room right now. These statements of Scripture universally apply to all men and all women and children. They describe every unbeliever. They describe everyone who is born into this world. You came into this world a child of worthlessness, a child of wrath, a child of disobedience, a child of the devil. And like father, like son, that is what you are. It's what you and I are. And so what do we need? We need a new father. The most basic thing we need is a new father. And so what does God the Father do? He adopts us as his sons. God the Father rescues his elect by making them his children through adoption. So what is adoption? Let me read to you, this will be on the screen, the, the definition that has been handed down to us by the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is chapter 12. Listen to this and read it carefully. He says, or it says, all those that are justified, God vouchsafes, that's an old word that means he he stoops down and he makes promises to us by oath, guarantees. God vouchsafes in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation." Now think about what this says. This is, this is a boiled down, this is the essential oil of, of adoption. Adoption has a legal aspect. It allows us to receive an inheritance from God the Father. Adoption makes us heirs of God. Galatians 4, 1-7. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons." Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Colossians 1.12, the Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. This is what it means to be an adopted son of God. It means to have a legal standing with God where we stand to receive the inheritance. Everything that God has in God the Son comes to us through our adoption. 
we stand to inherit all that God has for us. Now that alone is amazing. Now by the way, this whole issue of inheritance is why scripture almost always speaks of our adoption as sons. Both men and women receive the inheritance of sons. Galatians 3.26, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Not children, not sons and daughters, but sons. In the ancient world, sons got the inheritance. This is a great blessing. We all now receive the inheritance. When God adopts, he gives all of us the legal status of sons. But we could think, hearing that, that adoption is a cold, detached, legal formality, something that just kind of happens on paperwork. But adoption is not that. It's also all about relationship. When God adopts us, he becomes our father truly and relationally, not just legally. As the confession says that I just read, we are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by God as by a father. Think of all the, all the places where, where God connects being a father with loving us. Psalm 103.13, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Ephesians 1, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons. 1 John 3.1, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. John 16, 26 and 27, Jesus says, in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. Direct access to him. John 17, 23, in Jesus' prayer to the Father before the crucifixion, he says, to God the Father, I in them, he's talking about his people, and you, Father, in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Now think about what, think about what he just said. Father, I want the world to know that you love your people just like you love me. Look at the words, that's what it says, right? You have loved them, Father. You've loved them, even as you have loved me. God the Father loves his adopted children just like he loves his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus says. In other words, the Father has the same relationship with you that he has with Jesus. He has the same love for you if you're an adopted son of God that he has for his natural son. No difference. None. He loves his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, 
He loves his adopted sons in exactly the same way. That's what Jesus says. Adoption is all about relationship. I can tell by looking at you that you don't feel that yet, do you? As the confession reminds us, adoption is also about discipline. We are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by God as by a father. You remember the words of Hebrews chapter 12. If you're a son, the one thing you know you get from your father is discipline. And discipline is love. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Brothers and sisters, these are wonderful blessings. And Packer was right. If you don't get this, then you don't get Christianity. If you don't believe this, then you are not a Christian. If you don't taste this, then how can you be a son of God? Because over and over again, Scripture tells us that the realities of our adoption are tasted, experienced, known, and felt by the sons of God. Romans 8, 15 and 16. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Galatians 4, 6. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Is this true of you? This is what a Christian does. He calls out to God as Father. That means that when a Christian prays, he prays to God the Father. Not just to God, not just to Lord, but to Father. But it has to mean more than that because you can have a mouth that says the right sounds, Father. But this is a cry of the spirit. This is a cry of the heart. God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Is this true of you? Is God your father? Do you know it and taste it as real? If it's not, then come to him. Come to him like the prodigal son came to his father. Come with humility and awareness of your sin, and the father will run out to greet you. He will clothe you with the robes of righteousness. He will accept you and rejoice with you and pity you and love you. So adoption has legal aspects, inheritance. It has relational aspects, love, pity, and discipline. Our adoption has experiential aspects, Abba, Father. But there's still more. There's one aspect of God's adoption that's very different from our adoption of children into our families. It's very easy to think that our adoption, or that God's adoption is like our adoptions. 
When you decide to adopt a child from Ethiopia or China or from here in the States, it's primarily a legal process. Some of you have been through it. There's the paperwork, there are the evaluations, there's the paperwork, there are the home studies, there are court dates, there's more paperwork. And finally, there's a legal declaration by a judge where, whereby he awards you, the adoptive parents, all the legal rights and responsibilities of parenthood. The name is changed, the legal status is changed, the relationship is changed. But what does not change? The nature of your new child did not change. His DNA did not change. The child's ethnicity did not change. Tate is an Ethiopian. Josiah is an Ethiopian. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? The child's eye color, hair color, skin color doesn't change to match yours as soon as the gavel, the judge's gavel hits, hits the stand. None of that changes. Legal status, yes. Rights and privileges of, as a son, yes. Relationship, yes. Nature, no. But that is not how God's adoption works. Thank God. When God makes you a son through adoption, he does not stop at legal standing. He does not even stop at relationship. Unlike human adoption, God's adoption changes your nature. This is exactly what we need. Remember what we are by nature, sons of worthlessness, sons of wrath, sons of disobedience, sons of the devil. That's what we are by nature, and so we need more than a change of legal status. We even need more than just a new relationship with God. We need a new nature, and this is exactly what God gives us in our adoption. God makes us his children. He gives us a new nature, a new heart. That's what it means to be born again. It means to receive from God a new nature. It's what we mean by the term regeneration. He makes us new. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. 2 Peter 1, listen to these words. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. What wonderful news. A new nature. A nature like God's, like the Father, like Father, like Son. No longer sons of worthlessness or sons of wrath or sons of disobedience or sons of the devil. Now, sons of the living God, brothers of our Lord Jesus Christ, children of light. God's adoption produces in his children a fundamental change. And that fundamental change of nature results in fundamental change of life. Over and over again, that's the point of your adoption. The point of your adoption by God the Father is that you would live like a son. 
The point of your adoption is obedience. Not just obedience to a master, not just obedience to a king, but obedience to a father. The highest call to obedience is this, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. God adopted you so that you would be an obedient beloved son. This is why whenever the Apostle John mentions being born of God in 1 John, he always ties it to obedience. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. For Whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Over and over again, whenever John mentions adoption or being born of God, it's always talking about obedience. This is why the Apostle Paul speaks of our adoption as sons. When he speaks of it, he obligates us to obedience. Romans 8, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption of sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may, be also, may also be glorified with him. You're a Christian? You're a son of God. You claim all the privileges of being a son. But you will not obey your father. You live as a slave to your sins, your lust, your greed, your alcohol, your food. You cling to your bitterness. You cling to your pride. But you claim the rights of a son? Inheritance from God, relationship with God. What about the duties of a son? You are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. 
But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those who are being led by the Spirit of God, led not in some mystical what side of the street should I walk down kind of nonsense, but led by the Spirit of God into obedience to God. All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these and these alone are sons of God. You think your adoption, your sonship, makes sin and obedience irrelevant? You could not be more deceived. Let me read one last passage of Scripture to you, Ephesians 5, 3 to 8. Listen carefully. But immorality, think of all that that word means, or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Doesn't even have the, the, the legal rights of a son. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Brothers and sisters, walk as children of light. Be done with your lust. Be done with your addictions. Be done with your foolish rebellion. Be done with your immorality. Fight your sin and kill it by the power of the spirit of adoption. You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Live like a son of God. The blessings of adoption are yours. If you have come to God the Father through faith in God the Son, you are a son of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, honor your father. Obey him, for this is right. You say it to your children all the time, and you make sure they know it. It applies to you. Honor your father. Obey him, for this is right. Let's pray. Father, we know that we displease you as your sons. And we know that you are filled with compassion so that you discipline us. Let us rejoice in that. I pray, Lord, for those here who are adopted sons of God and yet don't taste it and don't feel it, Lord, pour out your spirit of adoption into our hearts that we may cry out, Abba, Father. I pray for those here who are utterly deceived, thinking that they have the rights and privileges of sons and yet 
their rebels. Open their eyes. Give them new birth. Change their nature. Let them come to you as a son comes to a father. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Stephen. What we're going to do now is we're going to have a time of question and answer. We're going to have two microphones at the end of each of these center aisles. Stephen, actually, come back up here. I'm not answering them. (laughs) Um, If you could, please keep your questions clear, concise, to the point. Uh, Please, uh, only one question. If you can't get to the microphones at the end of the aisles, raise your hand really high. We're going to have this microphone, uh, and someone will be able to run it to you. Uh, We're going to have about 10 minutes here where we can do questions and answers. So uh, please come to the microphones now. I was wondering in relation to, uh, as you emphasized that God changes our nature, uh, how, how does a believer benchmark that? Because um, I'm just too hot? Is that going to work? Okay. How does a believer benchmark, how do they, how they have assurance that they, they know that their nature has been changed, that they are an adopted son of God? I'm thinking specifically of Matthew 7. There are false prophets. There are those mm-hmm. who are self-deceived, those who the Lord says, even though they did miracles in his name and say, Lord, Lord, I do not know yep. you. And then on the, you know, I know that to be a son or to be reckoned to Christ as a son or as a mother or brother or a sister in Christ, you do the will of the Father. But yep. for, for the believer, how do we know that? How do we know our adoption? Two primary ways. Um, the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are sons of God. That's the one The spirit uh, of adoption cries out in our hearts, Abba, Father. That's the same kind of thing. Um, But then all those passages in 1 John, that's what they're there for. It's this is what the son of, this is what a child of God does and looks like. This is what a child of the devil looks like. Uh, That one passage is so clear. This is how we know who the sons of God and who the sons of the devil are. Remember that one? Whoever is born of God practices righteousness. And so there's, that is the thing to look at. Experience and, and obedience. Because that's what a son does. Does that help? Yeah, thank you. Yep. What about baptism? I, what about it? I, uh, I don't read about baptism when it comes to knowing you're a son of God unless I'm missing something. Am I missing something? What are the questions? Would you mind? Can you, would you mind a, a microphone? There we go. Just a, a follow-up comment, the, uh, the nature, the sons of God are not mentioned in Romans 6, 
where he is talking extensively about baptism. Yes. And there is clear issues there about your identity. You're, right. you're either identified with Christ or you're not. And baptism, how, whatever it is you think that means, is yeah. intimately linked. That's, the, that's, that's what. Right. So I would um, maybe link or ask you to comment on that in relationship to your overall uh, discussion. Romans 6 is, uh, is what you're referring to. You're baptized into Christ, whoever has been baptized into Christ, baptized into his death. Um, yeah, that is clearly speaking about a new, uh, about regeneration. Um, I do not believe that the water of baptism confers that regeneration on those baptized. Um, if that's the case, then, then Paul was a very bad evangelist because he didn't, you remember what he says in 1 Corinthians, I, don't, I, don't, I didn't baptize any of you. Oh yeah, I baptized a couple of you. Um, so I, I don't think that it's related like that. Tim, were you wanting to follow up on that as well? talking about that they say what when Jesus is arguing with yeah. them what do they say and you remember I stopped and I was like okay baptism and, and Calvin and Luther again and again and again say do not give yourself again to ceremonialism and it's always our habit to trust rituals and ceremonies and so you're going you're gonna to trust that you did the sinner's prayer. You're going to trust that you prayed to receive Jesus in vacation Bible school. You're going to trust in your baptism. The ritual can be completely, you know, postmodern, evangelical. It can be high Anglican. But if Calvin and Luther were right, it's always a seduction for us to be like the Pharisees saying, we are the children of circumcision. You know, we've been circumcised. And God uses circumcision. He commands circumcision. He uses baptism. He commands baptism. He gives grace through these things. But what Stephen said is so important. How do we know that we're children of God? Now, if you want to point to your baptisms as something in which you or your parents were obedient, that's fine. <laughs> Don't trust rituals and ceremonies. Use them. Be obedient to them. God has commanded them. Grace comes through them. Don't trust rituals and ceremonies. And that's one of the dividing points of the, of the reform world today. Yeah. So be very careful on that one. Just on this uh, same point, I hope you'll understand my accent. <laughs> we'll try. I think the question for me is how do I know will mean can I feel it? Can I really feel it that I'm a child of God? I don't think you can feel it. I don't think it's something that you want to say, okay, I now feel that I'm a child of God, but I feel like 
What it means is that this is the word of God. This is what it says. Do I believe it? Do I own it? Do I understand that this is true? Do I accept it that this, this is true? I think that is the point. How do I know I'm a child of God? I believe it. Uh, yes, but you also feel it. Um, we, we, can't, we can't separate faith apart from experience. And so we don't want... Um, there, there's, a, there's a version of Christianity that goes way back that says faith is mental assent. All that faith is is assent to the truth, and that's what faith is. It has no impact on my experience, no impact on my... So that's not what you mean. I, I understand that's not what you mean, but, I, but there are a lot of people that that's what they would hear if you say... It has nothing to do with my, whether I feel it or not. It just has to do with my, my belief. Go ahead. Follow up. Uh, that is not what I mean. Yeah. <clears throat> For instance, if the, word, the Bible says, I'm righteous, mm-hmm. do I have to, I mean, there is doubt because of who I am and what I do. I feel like I'm not righteous. But that is true. Yeah. Now I accept it. I believe it. Yeah. So if I go by feeling alone, that's right. I will end up in trouble. Yeah. I have to feel it and also believe it. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying that uh, feeling is not outside, but right. if we capitalize on feeling, then we will miss the whole point. Yeah. That's why in, in Romans 6, he goes on and on and on and on and on. Uh, this is what has happened to you. This is what God has done. And then finally he says, now consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. I agree with you. Yeah. So we have, we have time for one more question. I was hoping in, in the Ephesians passage he talks about let no one deceive you with empty words. And in, in my experience in dealing with people who are wrestling with all the things in that list, one word keeps coming up and up and up and up and up, and that's addiction. Can you speak very specifically to what someone, uh, what someone needs to understand from what you've said, if they, they feel they've, they've been raised in the church, they have believed as much as they know in their own hearts that they can believe, um, and they may be deceived, and yet they're wrestling with pile upon pile of addictions, uh, drugs, sexual addictions, other things like that, and everybody else is telling them, you know, well, you know, I'm from the South, bless your heart. Um, <laughs> you need to believe, you know, you're a child of God, and, and yet they have this, this tension in their lives, and they're, they're coming to me saying, you know, I believe this, and I believe Jesus is my Savior, but I have this physiological thing now that I have to feed. And take that away from us. <laughs> pa- pastorally, how do, you go, how do you go from this this brain chemistry thing to, and, and nowadays everything is being called an addiction. Right. Well, I think that's important. Um, the label addiction is a medical term that comes from a medical mindset, a medical model. And so we talk about addictions, but when, when Christians talk about addictions, 
unless we're talking about very specific things. I mean, clearly you can be addicted to heroin, you can be addicted to alcohol. Uh, Can you be addicted to immorality? Does any of that mean that you're not morally responsible for the alcohol, the heroin, the, 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 the immorality? It can't mean that. Um, I think the, the biggest thing in my mind is, do you give yourself to these sins, and have you called a truce with them? Um, do you claim, no, I'm a Christian, I, I know I'm a Christian, and yet, you know, I like this sin. And uh, addiction is a convenient label that removes responsibility from us. I can't help it. You know, being addicted is like catching a cold. Um, it's just something that happens to me. You know, I didn't, I didn't have any control over it. It happened to me. And whatever we do, we cannot remove moral um, uh, obligation from those sins, their sins. Um, the chains of a man's sin hold him fast, it says in Proverbs. And that's a pretty good description of addiction. But there it is in the book of Proverbs, and it's called sin. Um, so I think what you have to press, what you, so it's complicated, and we don't have time to get into all the complications of it. Is this a physical, is this literally a physical addiction? If it is, where did it come from? Because it, the drinking or the whatever started somewhere, and you can't deal with the addiction unless you deal with that stuff, the sin behind it. So you have to deal with the soul. You have to, if the body is literally chemically dependent on whatever, you've got to deal with the body, but you can't deal with the body as if the man doesn't have a soul and he isn't responsible for his sin. All right, uh, Stephen, thank you very much, and uh, thank you all for questions. I want to say another thing about that, which is that it's the purpose of the church and the calling of the church to make the division clear, and that those who do give themselves to sin, instead of being, having said to them, bless your heart, that the church says you are not a Christian. And if you're a part of a church which is not regularly saying to people, we will have nothing to do with you because you claim to be a brother and you are in sin. Mm-hmm. Now, you, this has to be the elders, not you. Not the pastor, the elders. Nevertheless, when the elders are not regularly doing that in the church, then you're going to have this kind of stuff all over the place because the elders are not requiring people to choose who they will serve. And so the blurry lines are just going to wreak havoc within the fellowships. So and make sure you're in a church that is regularly excommunicating people. 1 Corinthians 5. Read that. 